The Double K Super Show, Episode 14, A One-Shot Deal. Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. You're not going to cancel my culture. This is Mark. I hate every chimp I see, from chimpanzee to Konsarovsky. And today we're going to do something a little different, a little off the beaten path. Uh, Mark, do you want to explain what we're going to do? Uh, we're going to do everything in one shot. Now, a one-shot is something that's pretty much what it implies, a one-shot thing, a one-time-only thing that happens for whatever reason and that's never repeated. But I think we may be a little you know, lenient in our definition of one-shot. At least I know I'm going to be in a couple of instances. As the great bard Frank Zappa once observed, it might just be a one-shot deal. And that includes somebody's time in the spotlight as a major artistic force, as well as the one or two small hits they may have had. And right, some of these and some of these artists did have long careers. It's just that their one shot was, you know, one brief shining moment, but had an impact on pop culture or the radio, you know, especially in cases that I can remember. So we've decided that we're going to do a top five. You know, we'll kind of go back and forth. We'll start from five and go to one. Uh, Mark will do his, I'll do mine, and we'll we'll discuss each other's. And for the most part, we don't really know what the other guy is going to say. That's true. We've decided to keep this in the realm of productive suspense. Yes, and uh, hopefully we'll you know surprise each other with our picks, and hopefully you guys will be surprised by them as well. So, Mark, since you came up with this, do you want to do your your number five first? Well, first I need to put the lime in the coconut and drink it all up. Uh, let me guess. A, a touch of Smilson or a Nilsson? Could be a little touch of Smilson in the night, depending on whether you're dealing with Smilson Para or Smilson Feel. Ah, I don't know what those are references to, so I'm just going to have to defer to you on that one. You might be dealing with the father or the son of Schmilson, or possibly the Holy Ghost. Okay, I am familiar with some of his album titles. So is that you going with that song? You put the lime in the coconut? I'm going with Harry Nilsson and his absolute zenith and his really brief, comparatively brief time in the public spotlight. Um, Harry Nilsson had always been a go-to songwriter. He was a veteran of the Brill Building days. He had an office at RCE Records. He procured a solo deal. You know, you remember the classic album titles, uh, Pandemonium Shadow Show and Aerial Ballet. They were cult hits. And Harry Nilsson has always been considered a cult figure. But for a very brief time, he had a gigantic selling album, Schmilson, Coconut, Without You, the the famous Badfinger cover, and please accept no substitutes in that department. And, of course, another classic that appeared in Goodfellas, Jump in the Fire. Yeah, that's one I'm not as familiar with. I I haven't seen Goodfellas in a long time, but even if I did, I probably wouldn't have recognized that song. Uh, my My knowledge of Nilsson is fairly limited to, you know, what was played on the radio. You know, and, and again, like most classic rock artists, Nilsson is kind of reduced to, you know, he may be reduced to fewer songs than your average classic rock artist. Unfortunately, the majority of those three songs do seem to come from one album, 
the uh, famous Schmilson album from 1971, uh, which is peppered by performances from a great, great many uh, guest stars, uh, people like Klaus Vorman, uh, Jim Gordon, who we'll be talking about in another connection. It's basically his thriller, more or less. It's the one album that everybody remembers from him. And unfortunately, he seems to go right back to being a cult artist afterwards. Yeah, it's, you know, Nelson was one of those guys who seemed to be a very interesting character. He seems to be known equally as much for his um, extracurricular activities, particularly being one of the Hollywood vampires, which is a group of guys that got together and drank and caroused and, you know, did all who knows what back in the 70s. Yeah, that basically was the trap that all too many of them fell into, and and that is the major reason why you basically have one gigantic hit album from Harry. It expanded his drinking budget, and as a result, the records he released in the aftermath are uh, largely composed of songs written during a time when you had to be there. So true. But I will say this, I did know Lime and the Coconut long before I knew who Harry Nilsson was, because I believe it was used in a commercial back in the 70s, or it was, I, I saw it somewhere on TV. The Muppet Show. <laughs> yeah, probably. The Muppet Show was my um, exposure to a lot of music in certain bands, so you're probably right, it probably was The Muppet Show. I mean, I watched a lot of TV back in the 70s, in the 80s. Anyhow, so... Harry Nelson, We Speak Your Name, that would be first on my list of recommended one-shots. And that's a good one. I mean, my, I probably should delve into that a little myself because, you know, I don't even own anything by him. He's well worth investigating. Even the later albums where he appears to be drowning in vodka as he sings. Well, if you were around in the 70s, the 80s, whatever, you were drowning in something. Very true, huh? Now we move on to the um, recommendation garnered by my esteemed colleague. We turn the mic over to Chris Carroll. I feel like I should, sh- I should sing Shock Me at this point. <laughs> my number five, I-, I actually picked it in terms of songs, but these are songs that were basically from kind of one-shot things anyway. So I picked a song called When the Heart Rules the Mind by the group GTR. This is from 1986. And this was a supergroup that featured uh, guitarist Steve Howe, who had just left the group Asia, and he would at that time he was also formerly of the group Yes, which we've talked about at least once or twice. Oh. And the other, it also featured another guitar player named Steve Hackett, who played in the '70s version of Genesis. This was before they became a pop band. They also had a guy named Max Bacon on vocals, Phil Spaulding on bass, and a guy named Jonathan Mover on drums. This was Steve Howe trying to kind of capitalize on, in my opinion, the success he had with Asia. This was, you know, pop, but it was pop with a sort of progressive feel to it. And the album it came from is actually pretty good. There's some good songs on it, but... In one respect, though, this group was doomed from the start because... If you know anything about Steve Howe as a guitar player, you know that he does not play well with other guitar players. So I don't know why he got into a band with Steve Hackett, uh, a considerable guitar player himself, who, like I said, he'd been in Genesis and he did a long solo career by that point. 
So this group never made it beyond this album, you know, which had a kind of fair to middling impact in terms of the charts. But, you know, it was good to hear Steve Howe again. And it was it's always good to hear some melodic pseudo progressive pop. Was, was this album designed very, 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 very barely remember the sound being played on the radio. This was 1990 or so. No, 86. So this was before, um, before ABWH. Yes. The song I remember had kind of like a new wave-ish tinge to it. I always thought it was kind of like his answer to 90125. This song, I don't know if I'd call this song an answer to 90125. Like I said, he was, Steve Howard just uh, had a acrimonious departure from the group Asia after two records. So this was kind of his next thing that he was moving on to. You know, it was actually, it was on Arista Records, which which uh, would also factor into the, you know, Anderson, you call them ABWH, but for our listeners, that's Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe, which was a kind of an offshoot of the band, yes, but they there were basically two songs off this record that had, you know, any kind of impact, and it was this song and a song called The Hunter, but The Hunter was more of a, a ballad-type track. You may, in fact, if anything, when the heart rules the mind was probably more of an was probably more of an MTV thing, as I recall. That's pretty much the only thing I remember. This is not a project I'm incredibly familiar with. I'm looking at Robert Kreiskal, that famous critic, looking at a site right now, and he seems to have a review of this record, which is certainly uh, brief but memorable. He seems to have written. GTR TTL SHT. And How that's quaint. the entire review. So take that as you will. Well, you know, critics are critics. It's just their opinion. You know, like yeah. our like when we talk about stuff, it's just our opinion. That's very true. And we don't get paid for it. No, we don't. You get what you pay for, folks. And the name just and by the way, the, the do you know what the name GTR stands for? I always assumed it was like three initials of members of the group, but apparently that's not the case. When uh, when you have an amplifier or you plug into a uh, console to record your stuff, instead of having the word guitar, they just put GTR. Fair enough. And considering that this band had two superstar guitar players, it kind of made sense to call the band GTR. If only they had Patrick Moraz in the group, they could have called it. Keytar. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, Keytar. Yeah, that would have been too many egos for this group. Like I said, you already had Steve Howe, who, you know, like I said previously, he is a great guitar player, but he does not play well in bands with other guitar players. So, you know, this was definitely a one shot, and you know, it wasn't a huge hit, but if you were a fan of Steve Howe, it was nice to hear him back, you know, with a new band in the spotlight, especially after the. You know, debacle with Asia, who after you know two albums, just you know they were already having their their problems, and of course Steve Howe comes from you know Yes, who were notorious for having problems. But this was nice and melodic, and it uh, you know it came on a year that uh, I consider to be a very good year musically, 1986. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I guess we can move on to my second choice. This comes from. A year when I believe we were both drooling infants of that. 
um, talking about 1970, and the very famous, very brief Derek and the Dominoes. Oh yeah, I mean, I don't know if I was, I don't know if I was drooling at that point. I, I might have been, but I was definitely uh, giving my mom a lot of grief and uh, you know running at top speed and getting into whatever I could get into. But I wouldn't say even at that that you were giving your mother quite as much grief as apparently a certain Patty Boyd was giving George Harrison. Yeah, that's a that's a situation that's one of the great rock and roll, you know, love triangles, especially when you consider how it happened and how it played out over time. Do you want to relate the story of what led to Layla, uh, Mark? Well, basically, Eric Clapton fell in love with George Harrison's wife. And it was a long, long, long drawn out process that goes on years after this song is written. This song is actually merely the tip of the iceberg. In fact, years and years later, well, several years later, George Harrison records a solo album called Dark Horse, in which he records a version of the old Everly Brothers standard, Bye Bye Love. And he changes the lyrics of the song to reflect the, pa- the fact that Patty has finally left him for Eric Clapton. Yeah, that was bizarre. But on the other hand, it made for one of the great one-shot rock and roll albums of all time. I mean, you if you know classic rock, you know Layla, you know Bell Bottom Blues. And the way this album you know, came about was, was very interesting because... Eric Clapton just wanted to do something anonymously. He was tired of the whole Clapton is God thing and just wanted to be Derek instead of Eric. Yeah, a lot of people think that Derek comes across from, well, comes from the fact that Dwayne Allman is very famously involved in this record. But the fact of the matter is that the sessions were already booked as Derek and the Don Lewis even before he was invited. Uh, Derek was basically a pseudonym and Domino's, whether that's, you know, some kind of backhanded tribute to the legendary Fats or just a word that goes along with Derek, we'll never know. But the sessions were definitely enhanced by bringing Brother Dwayne along. Oh, most definitely. And the title track would have been vastly different if Dwayne Allman hadn't come into the picture. You, you know why, right? Yeah. The... uh the famous slide guitar parts, the high-pitched parts, are all provided by Dwayne Allman. And Dwayne Allman is also rumored to have written the very riff of the song, at least in the form that we know it today. Well, as I understand it, too, Eric Clapton originally envisioned the song Layla as being kind of a slow kind of shuffle, like the, you know, kind of like the way he did it on Unplugged, you know, 20 or so years later. Mm-hmm. But it was... Uh, Dwayne Allman, who said, no, 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 come on, let's kick this up a notch. He didn't probably say, say kick this up a notch, but he wanted to speed it up a little, and he did come up with that riff and electrified it. Would Layla have been the song, would it have had the impact it did if it was, you know, a slow shuffle? We'll never know. No, but, you know, the other matter revol- revolving around authorship in this particular song, which deals not with the with the famous radio part, but with the extended piano-led coda. Yeah, that was composed independently by the drummer, and he was kind of reluctant to have it tacked on as the you know fade-out of the song or the, the last part of the song. 
But it's a classic. I mean, you know, like I said, I think that was in Goodfellas, right? Yeah. Um, the thing about that is that our dear friend Jim Gordon might have sort of borrowed that from his girlfriend at this time, Rita Coolidge. That's certainly the story that Rita Coolidge has been giving to the press ever since. Well, as with anything, you know, uh, you know, they say failure is an orphan, but success has many fathers, or in this case, oh. mothers. So, yeah, I mean, he could have heard that anywhere, but it's it's very unusual, you know, to hear that a drummer composed a piano part. <clears throat> And the interesting thing, too, about this album is that the other big song from this album, Bell Bottom Blues, uh, does not feature Dwayne Allman on it. I believe it may have been recorded before he came on board, and you know they felt it was okay as it was. Bell Bottom Blues is on there. Uh, a very interesting cover of, of uh, the Immortal Hendrix standard, Little Wing, is also on that album. Yeah, because he had just, I think he just, had he, was he, had he died when they recorded that, or was... I think it was directly before or, or very, very directly after. And, you know, they never obviously got to do a second album. I mean, I believe they were going to do one. But the other interesting thing about this album, as I recall, is that when it came out, it was, was it 1970, right? Yes. But it didn't become a hit till like a year later. It, it, there was a delayed reaction to it for whatever reason. Uh, the group didn't tour in America until something like six or nine months later, now until 1971. And interestingly enough, uh, they lasted through the summer here in America. And that was pretty much the end of the project, because the next thing you know, Jim Gordon is back in England working with a group called Traffic. Oh, yes, Traffic. Another classic group. And, of course, featuring Steve Winwood, who had done the one, another one shot, funnily enough, uh, Blind Faith with Eric Clapton. Hmm. Eric Clapton uh, should be the honorary uh, crowned king of one-shots during this period. Yeah, and the thing is, his one-shots were great. I mean, he, you know, these these were bands that had significant success, significant, uh, you know, songs, and songs that have endured. Especially, I mean, Layla's, you know, become a ballad for our unrequited love or, you know, pining away after your, you know, your friend's girlfriend for years or your friend's wife. So with that in mind, we uh, we salute Derek and his dearly departed Dominoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's unfortunate that like a year later after this came out, you know, Dwayne Allman would, would pass away. And, uh, you know, I think was it Jim Gordon was the one who had some some issues with substance abuse and got involved in some domestic violence. Or Yeah, uh, Jim Gordon. uh decided to greet his mother at the door one day with a hammer in hand and it didn't go well from there. Yeah. It's just, and you know, in Clapton, I mean, Clapton obviously is still alive, but Clapton fell into a long time heroin addiction, which, you know, only got resolved when he finally ended up with uh, George Harrison's wife. And that we, we could do just a whole show on that alone, but we won't. Not this time. But anyhow, uh, we move on from there to, uh, Chris Karam's number two pick. Take it away, Chris Karam, number two. Okay, I'm going to go with the song Jelly Roll by the band Blue Murder from 1989. This was a band that was built around uh, John Sykes, who was the lead guitarist and vocalist of this band. 
Prior to this, John was the lead guitarist on White Snake's uh, 1987 album. You know, you know that one, the big one with uh, "Here I Go Again," "Still of the Night." And when he, you know, was unceremoniously dismissed from White Snake, uh, Geffen Records decided, well, let's keep this guy. He's a good guitar player, and they decided to, you know, sign him as an artist and build a band around him. And this is a power trio. Featuring Tony Franklin on bass, he being most recently of The Firm, which was the uh, band, the mid-80s band formed by uh, Paul Rogers of Bad Company and Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. and Carmine Apice on drums. And Carmine Apice, of course, was known for Vanilla Fudge, Rod Stewart, Jack, Cactus. Cactus. I mean, tons of things. I mean, you we, we could just – we could spend a whole show just – Relating to your Carmine Apice's, uh, re- you know, resume. Another major one-shot artist himself. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of one-shots. Uh, John Sykes, famous in the very, very beginning for being one for being the uh, the final lead guitarist on on Thin Lizzy's last album, Thunder and Lightning. That's right. That's that's right. And prior to this, he had not been a vocalist. He had just been, you know, the lead guitar player, but a hell of a lead guitar player. I mean, in addition to doing, you know, the White Snake 1987 album, playing on that album, he'd also played some lead guitar on the, you know, uh, the U.S. version of White Snake's Slide It In. So yeah, he definitely had quite the resume. As I understand it, he also unfortunately had some diva issues. Oh, yeah, and I can see why Coverdale and him, you know, they worked very well together creatively, but in terms of, like, egos, you know, it was just like uh, oil and fire. But, man, they had their one great shining moment, you know, with the White Snake 1987 album. Yeah, getting back to Blue Murder, this song, Jelly Roll, definitely reminds me of Led Zeppelin, the first part of the song anyway, where it's kind of, uh, I guess if I had to give you an example and say something like almost like brawn you are stomp um very acoustic you know kind of acoustic based and john sykes is a pretty good vocalist i mean he's not david coverdale but he sings very well and then the second part of the song which goes on for quite a bit is more of a power ballad type thing which of course you know was the thing back in the 80s i was gonna say it has a little bit of a 10 years gone feel to to some extent Hmm, i never thought about that this, this was a band that I thought should have been bigger than it was. You know, the first song they released was a song called Valley of the Kings, which was very uh, Led Zeppelin-esque. And I remember seeing the video on MTV and being really excited because, you know, John Sykes, this was his first thing since Whitesnake. And I like I said, I thought this album was going to be a lot bigger than it was and this band was going to be bigger, but it, it really didn't. And uh, what's interesting is that, they tried out different people for the vocalist slot, including uh, Tony Martin from Black Sabbath, among others. He would have been perfect in that video. Yeah. He would have had somebody relatively young to focus on because, as I recall, one of the sort of running jokes about that group was how ancient Carmine was even then. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you think about it, 89, Vanilla Fudge was what, like late 60s, you know, like 60. So Vanilla Fudge was already 20 years old. And you, yet you have, you know, Tony, Tony Franklin, who, like, you know, was a young Turk and he had the kind of flock of seagulls hair to kind of go along with that. 
Mm. And then you have John Sykes, who's, who, I mean, you want to say hair metal. The guy had, like, hair to, to, to burn. And if you've seen the video for Jelly Roll, you also know that he was ripped. I mean, the guy was just, he had to have been working out. Yeah. I mean, they had the visual appeal and they had the talent. Unfortunately, they came at a time which, which was pretty much the critical mass of, like, the whole Hollywood metal, hair metal, whatever you want to call it, right at the point where, you know, all the the competition had had devolved down to, like, Trickster and Britney Fox. And it was pretty much, you know, the melting point of that whole scene. Because I believe that album was released in, what, 91, 92, directly before the, the grunge hurricane hit. No, it came out in 89. Again, it is cutting it close because, you know, it's that whole thing about end of the decade. People are sick of, like, the prevailing scene of that time. People are looking for something new. I think that they kind of got caught by the Led Zeppelin effect, only in reverse. Yeah, possibly. I mean, they definitely weren't, you know, uh, Sunset Strip metal. They definitely weren't, you know, Hollywood metal because, I mean, two-thirds of the band were British. You know, they were just... And, and they, musically, they had a great pedigree. I mean, the musicianship in, in that band was really good, you know, possibly even better than, you know, say, I don't know, Trickster or Skid Row or whoever. But for whatever reason, they just didn't connect with the general public. I loved it, and I, I think it's a great record. But there was a second Blue Murder album that came out a few years later in 1994, but the only carryover from in terms of membership was John Sykes. It was a completely, it was a basically a different band. And from what I've heard, that album, which is called Nothing But Trouble, was pretty much a contractual obligation thing. I, I've heard that it's basically a Blue Murder album in name only. So as far as I'm concerned, Blue Murder was a one-shot deal. And it's, I think it's too bad they weren't bigger than they were. Well, these things do happen. Um, as I recall, Combine of Peace then went on to a great new group called... Uh, King Cobra with two Ks. Actually, that was before this. That was before that? Yeah, because I saw King Cobra open for Kiss in 1986 on the Asylum Tour. And I'll never forget it because the whole, I think there were like five guys in the band, and four of them were blonde, and Carmine Apice was a brunette. Yeah, Carmine doesn't sacrifice his Sicilian roots for anything. I mean, you know, even when he was with Rod Stewart, he still kept that, you know, he still kept his mustache and his hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carmine, Carmine was an interesting guy. But, you know, and, and one more thing I'll just say about this. I think that, you know, the same year in 1989, Whitesnake came up with their follow-up to the 1987 album Slip of the Tongue, which had Steve Vai on it. But I think in a lot of ways, this record was the more logical follow-up because you had Sykes playing the guitar composing the riffs and i think john sykes and i'm not saying this to put steve Vai down because i think he's a good guitar player but i think john sykes fit whitesnake better than steve Vai did he's you know more blues based and more and you know more along that kind of thing well steve Vai to me will always be frank zappa's stunt guitarist right and i mean you know you've also got you know he was also coming off of david lee roth and you know frank zappa and david lee roth are, are, are not you know very conventional artists. I mean, they both do rock, but they're, you wouldn't classify either one of them as being, you know, metal or something like that. More eclectic than anything else. 
Yeah, Steve Vai is, is more of a guitarist guitarist, whereas John Sykes, I think, sort of was one of those guys who tried to play it down in the middle. Well, he played it very well. And since we've discussed the Blue Murder, why don't we go on to your next pick, Mark? Well, I believe we go from Blue Murder at one end of the spectrum all the way back to Blue Cheer at the very, very opposite. Blue Cheer are, in some ways, definitive but very much Black Sheep power trio. They're a group that gets a lot of praise for being exactly as they are, and they're also a group that gets a whole lot of, let's sell, let's shall we say, not praise for being exactly as they are. Um, if you've heard this podcast once, you've heard Blue Cheer because they do supply our, our intro music. Yeah, and that was at your suggestion, because I had never heard the song, which I, I guess we'll identify now as Magnolia Caboose Babyfinger. Just the title alone, it's like, okay, it's, that's worthy of a theme song. That's worthy of theme music for our podcast. I would say so. Uh, Blue Cheer are sometimes considered the founders of heavy metal. Uh, they're also considered the ultimate garage punk band, the logical extension. To me, they're not exactly either, but I would consider them to be a sort of bridge between snotty, scabby garage punk of the 60s and, you know, filtered through, you know, bad trip side of psychedelia. And if you emerge from that tunnel, you end up basically in the love canal that is heavy metal. I like that. The love canal that is heavy metal. Yes. Which is a development that they don't live to see because, again, they are a one-shot. However, their legendary album, Vincibus Eruptum, which has wonderfully uh, kinetic and, frankly, kooky liner notes by the great Augustus Owsley, uh, the supplier of LSD for the Grateful Dead, is the type of album that once you've heard it once, you definitely won't forget it. Uh, their one shot is their famous cover of Summertime Blues. Yeah, I think I've heard that, actually, now that I think about it. I probably have heard that version. Of course, you know, the version I know the most is the one by The Who. Of course, neither band you know wrote that song, but both bands kind of popularized it. Um, if you've heard the Rush EP feedback... You've heard Blue Cheers' version and the Who's version in the same shot. Yeah, that's interesting when you cover a song by a 50s, you know, rocker. I think it was, was it Eddie Cochran? Eddie Cochran. And, but instead of doing an Eddie Cochran homage, you're doing homage to Blue Cheer and the Who. But that doesn't surprise me because, you know, Rush were big Who fans. I know that Neil Peart, the late Neil Peart, sadly, was a, a fan of Keith Moon. The intro of that song, the uh, the riff that sounds suspiciously like Foxy Lady but isn't, that part is inherited from Blue Cheer's version, also the very end. But the main reason I bring them up is because, incredibly, against all odds, the kind of thing that could only happen in 1968 when clueless record executives were throwing anything against the wall to see what stuck, this song actually was a top ten hit. Summertime Blues? Yes, and the album itself went to a number 11 on the charts, giving them their obligatory one-shot deal. Now, were they did they only release one album? Uh, they released several. 
uh, there's a follow-up called Outside Inside, which never troubled the charts. They were one of the ultimate examples of a band that did everything they were supposed to do in their initial 33 minutes. So basically, they they made their mission statement, and that was it. Yeah, that's really all you need to know. Except that Magnolia Caboose Babyfinger is on the very great second album, but that's all she wrote. Yeah, and again, you know, I'm deferring to you on this one because I've heard of the band Blue Cheer, but I aside, like maybe aside from Summertime Blues and of course our our opening theme music, I know you know little to nothing about them or nothing to little about them. You know, it's. I am aware that they, you know, have had an impact. I mean, I, I'm sure I've read about them in some rock history book or something like that. And I do like, and I do like the title, the album title, Vincibus Eruptum. It, it's, it just sounds cool. Yeah, it's, it's an album that's produced extremely raw, steak tartare raw. It's the essence of power trio, what Hendrix was doing, what Cream were doing, what the Who were doing. The Who basically being a power trio with a singer. It's the essence of everything that was happening in England, in the garages, boiled down, mutated a bit. And the finished product would be known as heavy metal, which we don't have here, but we have their immediate ancestor. So we know who to blame for this. Which is interesting because when you get into the subject of who created heavy metal, that seems to be very uh, controversial because a lot of people think it was Black Sabbath. Well, the one thing Blue Tear doesn't have is there's no mention of the horned one, nor does there need to be. Other than that, you have the distortion, you have the heavy blues riffs, you have a lot of screaming and bad production, and there's a general feel of just like teenage hormonal meltdown. You basically have every ingredient except, as I say, um, that denizen of the tarot cards, Beelzebub. Yeah, he would get used to much greater effect in the 70s and 80s. Mm. And not just with Black Sabbath, either. No, unfortunately, he pops up quite a bit. Anyhow, so there is my number three for our one-shot deal list. I think that's a pretty good one. I think so. It's You've definitely enlightened me on Blue Cheer, and... You know, maybe after we finish recording, I'll go check some of their stuff out. You know, I'm kind of intrigued by them now. You need headphones and earplugs at the same time. It's the only time you, you'll ever you'll ever be in that situation. Headphones and earplugs seems kind of to be at cross purposes, but I'll I'll go with that. <laughs> All right, I'll go with my next pick, which is a song called "Wasting My Time" by Jimmy Page. Uh, this is from his one and only 1988 solo album, Outrider. And uh, like the Blue Murder album, this was also on Geffen Records. And, you know, this was uh, this was after Jimmy Page had parted ways with Paul Rogers and The Firm after a couple of records. And, uh, you know, I guess they thought that, well, Zeppelin is, you know, big on classic rock radio, so... You know, let's sign Jimmy Page for a solo deal. And the Outrider album features uh, three lead vocalists. It's, it's, I would say it's about half instrumental and half songs with vocals. And the two of the three vocalists were one of them was called Chris Farlow. He was from he was a British blues singer who had uh, he had sung on the song Who's to Blame, which was on the Death Wish 2 soundtrack, which was composed by Jimmy Page. 
And the other guy was some guy, guy named Plant, um, Robert Plant, who did one song on the uh, record. But this song, Wasting My Time, was not only a single, it was also an MTV video. And on this song, and of course, Jimmy Page playing guitars, Tony Franklin is on bass, again, who you know we mentioned, I mentioned in the Blue Murder thing. Mm-hmm. He's on bass. Uh, Jason Bonham is on drums. Uh, this was not Jason Bonham's debut. Jason Bonham had actually been in a band called Virginia Wolf, who had opened for the firm when I saw them back in 1986. But, uh, you know, Jason was just starting to really become known to the public. And the vocalist is a guy by the name of John Miles, who's, you know, British, of course. You know, and this was a really good song. It definitely has, you know, the, the page riff thing going on. And it's probably the closest thing that Jimmy ever had to having a quote-unquote hit single. It really wasn't, and the album was not a big seller. But it was good to see Jimmy back on the charts. And, you know, this was kind of after the failed secret Led Zeppelin reunion of 1986. So, you know, he was at least getting out there. And he even, he even did a tour for this album. And I believe John Miles was the, did the vocals on the tour, but... This is a pretty good song, and uh, it's very enjoyable, and it's the really it is a one shot. It absolutely is. In fact, I had to really ransack my memory banks to even remember this particular one. I, I do remember him having a solo album, and I do remember seeing that video on MTV. I can't think of another single song off that record, unfortunately. Yeah, they, I don't think he did. They had another single or a video. There is one, you know, good song called "The Only One," and that's uh, the one that Robert Plant uh, not only sang on but wrote the lyrics for as well. Hmm. It was kind of a quid pro quo because Jimmy had also guested on Robert Plant's album from the same year, "Now in Zen." Uh, he actually played on two tracks, uh, "Heaven," the two single, the two big, two of the big singles. Heaven Knows and uh, Tall Cool One. Mm-hmm. And I would say that uh, I probably prefer the Plant album to this one. I think Now and Zen was his best one. But again, like I said, this was Jimmy Page's one shot. And, you know, the next time he would surface with a new album, it would be with um, David Coverdale from Whitesnake. But that's you know, that's a few years down the line. There's a tour with the Black Crows in there in the, at the start of around 1994. 96 somewhere in there actually it was i think page and plan were at that time the black crows thing was like early 2000s but yeah that was a one-shot thing too life's full of those today (laughs) well you know the problem is with robert plant is that you know i know from reading interviews that jimmy wanted to get led zeppelin back together in the in the 90s as well but plant wasn't having any of it you know plant was you know wanting to solo career then they did Page and Plant for a few years, and then Plant bowed out again. So, I don't know. Those two have a tricky relationship, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. Well, it seems like one needs the one more than the other, and that relationship varies back and forth. But what can you do? Right. And like I said, this album had featured, you know, half of it was stuff with vocals, and some of it was, you know, instrumentals, which made sense. You know, you, you want to... If you're doing a solo album by a guitar player, you want to have some featured instrumental stuff. But I imagine that, you know, maybe for the general public, that might not have been a selling point. And probably most people thought that it must have been like leftovers from Death Wish. 
you know how the public sings. Jimmy Page was not a singer, and he had to rely on whoever the singer was to get his music across. Yeah, it's the Eddie Van Halen dilemma. Speaking of dilemmas, um, I think we can safely move on to my number four. Although, uh, by doing so, we might be disturbing the priest. <laughs> I know what we're going with this one. Uh, talking about a charming little album with a delightful, uh, delightfully descriptive uh, front sleeve. Um, a certain album called Born Again. Not by a, a bunch of Christians, unfortunately, but by a group of sinister, devil-worshipping, black-clad, mustachioed, leather-coated, limey. Um, I believe they're known as Sack Blabbeth. <laughs> or, or possibly Black Sabbath. Possibly, um... Possibly. I don't know if I'd say Black Sabbath were Satan worshippers. I weren't born in Christians, but I don't think they were Satan worshippers either. I think they just were. I think they were using the whole Satan thing and the whole black magic thing for theatrical effect. Uh, Chris, they had mustaches. Well, they did have mustaches. Yes. Okay. That that I'll give you. Except for, of course, Ian Gillen. And we should we should probably you should probably explain the situation between the lineup on this album because this is not. This is not Ozzy with Black Sabbath, and it's not Ronnie James Dio. It's not Tony Martin, Ray Gillen, Glenn Hughes, or what's his name either. <clears throat> I think there were three. It's it, it. It could be David Donato, but it isn't. It could be Jeff Fenholt, but it isn't. It's Ian Gillen, the last person that anybody would think to hire for this job. In fact, you'd, you'd think that Richie Blackmore would hire him for Rainbow before Black Sabbath would, but you'd be wrong. Ian Gillen, the cheerful one, the great guy who sang Highway Star in 71, is now reduced to singing about running out of tequila and crashing this Highway Star in a classic MTV video called Trashed. Remember that one? Yes, I, I actually like that song. That's that. That's a pretty good song, as I recall. And funnily enough, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving home from work, and I just put my my iPod on random, and I heard "Dio Straight Through the Heart," and then "Trash" by Black Sabbath. I go, well, "That's a pretty good twofer." <laughs> yeah, "Born Again" is a classic from the cover straight down to the contents. But you kind of listen to that album, and you can't, and you kind of can't help feeling like you really are dealing with a bunch of guys who at this point are kind of at the pick up the pieces point in their career. Well, yeah, I mean, this album came, you know, it's funnily enough, our last show, we talked about Ozzy and Dio, and this is the album they did after Ronnie James Dio left the band. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand at this point it was just, you know, Tony Iommi, the guitar player and Geezer Butler, the bassist, and they weren't sure what to do. You know, they, I think they were even considering forming a new band or just calling it, calling it quits and they were managed by the infamous british gangster don arden and he convinced them to keep the black sabbath name going and they brought back bill ward the original drummer from black sabbath and what's interesting is that they brought in ian gillen you know of course most notably from deep purple and his at that point his own solo band but 
they didn't get together and jam. They just got together, had a few drinks, and said, yeah, why don't you join the band? Yeah, there's a famous story about Ian Gillen waking up in bed with a horrific hangover, his manager leaving him angry messages on the phone. Why don't you consult me before you go joining Black Sabbath? I'll admit, when I, I remember uh, you know, reading about it, probably in Hit Parade or Circus, and I was, you know, back at that point I was into deep, you know, the classic Deep Purple because Deep Purple wasn't uh, around at that point. And I remember thinking, Ian Gillen and Black Sabbath, that's kind of strange. You know, it just seemed like a weird combination. I mean, I like Sabbath, I like Gillen, but I couldn't know, I couldn't really see the two of them together. And the album kind of belies that fact, but it also exemplifies it. Ian Gillen sounds great fronting Black Sabbath. His voice, he's, he's in the top shape of his career, voice-wise. The band sounds on t- on top of things. The production is muddy as hell. In fact, I think it's the production that inspired the famous Spinal Tap, Spinal Tap joke. Not only the Stonehenge prop, but also the production gag. Oh, you put too much Dolby on it. <laughs> Dolby, yeah. No, Dolby, Dolby, not Dolby. Was it done in Dublin? <laughs> For those of you who don't may not understand, we're referencing the movie This is Spinal Tap. If you're a fan of hard rock or heavy metal, especially from the 70s and 80s, you owe it to yourself to watch this movie. Take my word for it. So the album doesn't sound great, but Ian Gillen sounds great vocally. The lyrics are best left undescribed. Well, you know, the funny thing about this album is that this album really divides Black Sabbath fans. Some love it, some hate it. I I don't really fall into either camp. I do like some of the stuff on it. I mean, I like Trashed. Zero the Hero is okay. And even Disturbing the Priest in its own own way is kind of, you know... Disturbing the Priest, the song, sounds to me like they're... Like Ian Gillen is trying to write evil lyrics like he's trying okay i'm in black sabbath so i have to write something about you know you know you know what that that disturbing the priest is a is a is a reference to right uh, forgotten go ahead well it's obviously a pun on disturbing the peace well yeah but they were rehearsing somewhere in england probably in the countryside and apparently there was a priest nearby who complained that you know, they're, they were playing too loud and, you know, could they, you know, turn it down a little bit? And according to Ian Gillen, he said, you know, he's, he was fine with that. You know, he, he said they didn't really have a problem with this guy. But he kind of, you know, being having that, you know, wicked sense of humor that he does, decided to, go, you know, we're just disturbing the priest. And, you know, he does these shrieking, shrieking screams and, Again, you know, like I said, between that and the whole, you know, Born Again album cover, which is best left undescribed, it sounds kind of me almost like a contrived attempt to sort of fit into Black Sabbath by writing these dark lyrics. Yeah, that's the thing about it. Vocally, he's a great fit. He sounds great fronting the group. The group itself are playing great. The production, (laughs) if you like bass guitar, that's the album to buy. Because apparently everything in that album was, was built to um, exemplify bass, right down to the bass drum pedal. Well, you know who mixed the album, don't you? Probably Geezer. He did. 
And Ian Gillen was not a fan of the mix for that album. He, when he heard, it, he said, "You know, we recorded these great songs, and they just sound like crap." Yeah, between that and the, and the, I mean, they were just recovering from the era of Tony Omi production, and now they move straight into this era where Geezer basically, uh, basically uh, sonically mangles the record, but. It's worth hearing. It's definitely one of the Brock's most interesting one shots. Yeah, it's and it was also again I think part of the reason for the production because the the production is credited to Black Sabbath and Robin Black and Robin Black was a producer engineer worked with Jeff Tull. So it looks like once again Tony Iommi or and or Geezer were taking the reins and it shows. Yeah, it's a double dose of uh, cocaine decisions as they say. Uh, which is a reference to Frank Zapper, of course. And before we, you know, move on from this, we should probably also mention too that, uh, you know, like I said earlier, they brought Bill Ward in, the original Black Sabbath drummer, to do the album, but he was having some issues trying to stay sober. And by the time the record came out, he had fallen off the wagon and had fallen off the band. And they replaced him for the Born Again tour with uh, Bev Bevan of the Electric Light Orchestra. It sounds like a total WTF moment until you remember that Bev Bevan, like the rest of our boys, is from Birmingham. So it's a case of ancient connections. Well, not only that, he was managed, uh, the Electric Light Orchestra was managed by Don Arden. That's true. And Born Again, I believe, started life as yet another attempt to record something for Jet Records. Yeah, I mean, who knows? And, you know, it's funny because when I've seen interviews where Tony or Geezer said, yeah, we were being mismanaged by Don Arden at the time. Hmm. And even Ian Gillen has said, you know, I was probably the worst singer that Black Sabbath ever had. And he was referencing more his image because he said, I didn't wear leather and I didn't, you know, write satanic lyrics. But he said he did like working with them. And although it ended up being a one-shot deal because, you know, Ian Gillen went back to deep to reform Deep Purple – he remained friends with he remains friends with Tony Iommi to this day, and they've even you know done I think they've even done a remake of Trashed, and they've worked on some some stuff together. Yeah, they did um, John Lord's famous project Who Cares, which kids is act, is the actual name of the project. Yep, and like I said, I like some of the song. I would say side one is okay because it's you know, but side two just kind of goes. It's kind of eh for me. I'm actually the opposite opinion. I like side two because all the Satan stuff goes away and it basically just becomes a kind of a run of the mill British blues album. Uh, in fact, you know what? To some degree, they even kind of start to sound like Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac on that second side. As, as it progresses down through the title track and that, that last song, Keep It Warm, it starts to get all riffy and bluesy, and they kind of travel back in time. I guess I'm rating it more on musical terms than lyrical terms. I just feel like this is the first. I, I feel like for me, this is a very front-loaded album. But you know, your your mileage obviously varies, and uh, it's neither it's neither right or wrong. That album cover is definitely wrong, though. I think we can agree on that. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those albums that at the time I didn't have the self-awareness 
when I was buying it. But now that I think back on it, I can only imagine what the clerk at Stewart's department store must have thought when I was, you know, handing over my ten bucks or whatever. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Live and learn, kids. My next one is uh, it's not a hard rock song. It's it's a song called "I Know There's Something Going On" by Frida, and this is from 1982. Frida is actually Anifrid Lingstad from the group ABBA. This came out right after ABBA broke up in 82. And if it sounds like a Phil Collins track featuring Frida, it is because Phil Collins uh, and his engineer co-producer Hugh Padgham produced this, and Phil Collins plays the drums on it. So you're saying that if the song sounds like the backing track of In the Air Tonight with new vocals on it, that Phil Collins might be involved? Well, I wouldn't quite say it's it's in the air tonight, but it's definitely of that vintage. It's definitely of that era. Yeah, I definitely remember. That was a huge MTV hit. I actually remember hearing it on the, on the radio, too. Um, and the song was written by Russ Ballard. And... Russ Ballard is someone who the general public may not know, but you've if you listen if you grew up listening to rock and roll radio in the seventies and the eighties, you definitely know some of his songs. Oh yeah. Everything from Argent Hold Your Head Up to, you know, Rainbow since in fact Russ Ballard is responsible for a ton of Rainbow, Latter day Rainbow songs. Uh, some people claim that, you know, Russ Ballard was basically the sixth member of Rainbow. Uh, talking about songs like Since You've Been Gone, uh, I Surrender, a whole bunch of others. Well, he also wrote a song called New York Groove, which was recorded by a group called Hello in the UK. But you may know the more popular version that came out in the US a few years later on uh, Ace Frehley's solo album, from Ace Frehley from Kiss's solo album from 1978. That's true. But this song, it was interesting because it's Frida's basically one and only, as far as I know, U.S. hit. You know, after this, I don't know if she released albums in the States or not, but this was like her one brief shining moment. Like, you know, like you said, it it was a MTV song. It was rock radio. And of course, Phil Collins was the uh, singer, songwriter, producer, drummer du jour of that time period. And I'm sure the fact that you know, it had the Phil Collins pedigree, didn't hurt its chances on the charts. Phil Collins was hotly in demand at that point, uh, working with Robert Plant and his solo career. Guy whose name I can't remember from Earth, Wind and Fire, Easy Lover, Philip Bailey, working with Sting, working with Elton John, working with Eric Clapton. I, it, Phil was everywhere in the 80s, and he achieved it all against all odds. <laughs> And take a look at him now, why don't you? Just shows you can't take anything at face value. But seriously, folks. Okay, before this degenerates into more Phil Collins puns, let's just get back to Frida. You know, of course, and like I said, she was from ABBA. Now, ABBA had, you know, just ended a 10-year run. And the interesting thing was, although they had some success, you know, some major success, their major U- U.S. success wouldn't come until years later through greatest hits albums, musicals, and various kinds of revivals. But you can see why Frida threw in her lot with Phil Collins because she was, you know, bereft of the um, ABBA hit machine, you know, in which the two guys, Benny and Bjorn, were writing the songs and producing the records. So, 
you know, she had to trust her career to somebody. And uh, it's a very it's a, it's a really great song. I, I just enjoy it. I mean, this is definitely not Waterloo or Dancing Queen. It's, you know, Frida kind of moving into the 80s. And unfortunately, she didn't really do much beyond this in the U.S. So, again, this is definitely I would define this as a one shot. Yeah, that song actually sparked a lot of controversy at the time because people were wondering, you know, is that her declaration of independence from ex-husband Benny or Bjorn, whichever one it was? Why is she why is she not recording at Polar Studios, the famous ABBA complex? You know, all these issues. It almost had kind of like you know a, a story behind the song kind of vibe to it. Yeah, and it's like I said, you know, and she, you know, she's got Russ Ballard writing the song. I and mean, Russ Ballard was hot. I mean, just in 1981 alone, he wrote the song "Winning for Santana," and of course, all the ones that you mentioned. It could very well have been her declaration of independence. I mean, she was really the first and only member of ABBA to really have any kind of a chart impact in terms of, uh, you know, MTV and the radio. So even though her solo career in the U.S. may not have played out the way she had hoped, she got her shot in. And it's a memorable song. It's it's a very, you know, again, like when you hear it, you hear those drums and you're thinking, yeah, that's definitely Phil Collins. But Hey, you know, if, when you're coming out of a situation like ABBA where you've had everything kind of, you know, taken care of for you, hmm. you got to throw in with the with the, the big boys, and um, it it certainly worked. Okay, Mark, since we have one left each, I'll let you go since you started this thing. You're letting me go to Funky Town. <laughs> Funky Town. Wow, that's a left field one. Funky Town is the great bridge between disco new wave and the entire upcoming 80s scene uh funky town says goodbye to the 70s in grand style hello to whatever the 80s might bring and does so in true one hit wonder fashion funky town is recorded by whether you want to call them a group an act a project whatever um a group called lips incorporated yeah, I believe they were one of those things where it was really just one guy, you know, kind of writing, producing it and synthesizing it. And he hired a, a singer to, you know, be on it. So whether it's a group or not, that's up for a debate. Um, Lips Incorporated also deserves some praise as possibly the last creative gasp of our beloved Casablanca records. Yeah, that came out right at the point where Casablanca was kind of reaching the end of an era with Neil Bogart leaving. So, yeah, it was kind of Neil Bogart's last gasp, so to speak. And like you said, it definitely does bridge the gap between, you know, disco and the the oncoming of New Wave, which was probably out in England at that point. But, you know, it you know, it is with stuff with England. It takes it takes a while to get to our shores. Well, Funky Town is a song that you more the more you squint at it, you really lose touch of whether it's supposed to be disco or whether it's supposed to be new wave. The lyrics pretty much point firmly at disco, but the synthetic beat is so 80s it hurts. You know, you definitely hear you definitely hear the Cure and New Order and 
groups of that vintage, flock of seagulls, etc. It's it's a predictor of many things, but it's also the song that announces the critical mass of the disco movement. Right, which had already kind of reached that critical mass the year prior, and which we talked about in our episode uh, Double K Goes to the Movies when we talked about, you know, Can't Stop the Music and uh, stuff like that. But yeah, it's it's I, I know it's I know it's featured on some disco compilations because I've got a couple of those. So Ooh. it straddles that line. But it's it's a very catchy song and you can kind of see why it was Lips Incorporated's I was gonna say biggest hit, but I think it was really their only hit. Yeah, I don't recall much else. I they may or may not have had a follow up single, a follow up album. But I think this is the song that definitely announces they're coming and going in the same breath. Well, you know, at least they made it to, if you're going to have a one shot, at least make it to number one, which it did on the U.S. charts. For being the blue cheer of the disco scene, inspiring as many movements as they probably melted down in the same breath, Funky Town is, is by far my number one choice for a one shot deal. Very surprising, but I'm I'm kind of glad that you threw that in there because I think with when I put in something, there's something going on. I thought I thought that would kind of be a, a left field choice too. We we have our uh, we have our moments of variation from the norm. Oh yeah, those are our vital signs. Yes, and we're not talking about rush. We're in no hurry. <laughs> but I'm bummed. All right, well, I guess I'll go with my number one choice. And although this artist is not a one-shot artist, this album and the song it came from kind of was. And the song I'm going to reference is called Living in the Limelight by Peter Cetera. This is from 1981. And, I, you know, we, of course, we talked about, you know, Peter Cetera becoming the adult contemporary balladeer on our Chicago episode. This was, again... This is falls right in between the bridge between this is from 1981. Um, the previous record he was on was Chicago 14 from 1980. And the following year, 1982, would be Chicago 16, which would really be seen as the beginning of Chicago's power ballad era. So you're talking about something that's a little bit poppy, but not as blatantly David Foster poppery as things were about to get. No, no, no. This song rocks. I remember hearing this song on uh, probably either WCOZ or WCGY from, you know, Boston. And this song really does rock. You should, after we record, you should go on YouTube and listen to it. He's actually, one of the musicians on the song is Steve Luthiker from Toto. And I haven't heard the rest of the album, which is self-titled, by the way. But it really has a rock feel to it. I mean, not like Chicago rock where it's got jazz. This is more straightforward rock. It's It's got some edge to it. Uh, it's not heavy metal, obviously, but it definitely goes to show that Peter Cetera could have gone in an edgier direction if uh, things hadn't happened otherwise. Yeah, it's, it's kind of surprising to even think of, like, Peter Cetera participating in a rock song, at, at least since the passing of Terry Kath. Well, from what I understand, I, like, and like I said, I haven't heard the album, but he wrote most of the songs on this album. I think he wrote most of them by himself, or, you know, he. I think there was some collaboration with Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys, but I know he wrote this song by himself. And it was very, you know, when you listen to, like, 
you know, some of the latest, it's like, wow, he could have, you know, he really did, he did play rock and it wasn't jazz rock. It's just straightforward, you know, rock from that time period. That's good to hear because one of the things about Peter Cetera that unfortunately also kind of retroactively applies to the rest of Chicago is this perception that they were always, you know, you know, soap opera balladeers, if you leave me now. And that's all they ever did, which isn't as far from the truth as you can possibly imagine. Uh, we touched on that a great deal in our, our personal Chicago episode from a few months back. Yep. Chicago were a bona fide rock band. And this album, interestingly enough, was uh, the first album that came out after they'd signed with Full Moon uh, slash Warner Brothers. But this album and this was not a hit. Peter Cetera said something about this years later that was kind of confirmed by Danny Seraphine from Chicago. And you're going to love this when you hear this, Mark. Apparently, Warner Brothers or whoever didn't push the album because they feared if they promoted this album and it was a hit, that Peter Cetera would leave Chicago. I, I would never have seen that coming myself. I mean, that surely must have been the last thing on his mind. Well, probably at this point it was. I mean, it's just funny that, that they did that. You know, they probably just put it out because they just signed a contract with them. You know how back in the 70s and 80s, like if you were with a major band, you know, and you said, I want to do a solo album, they just kind of, you know, let you do it and write it off on their uh, taxes or write it off as a business ex- expense. Yeah. That, that explains, you know, such notable wonders as uh, Keith Moon's uh, solo career, brief as it was, and, and many more examples. I, I definitely get that. Yeah, but this song is actually listenable, and it's it's very enjoyable, actually. And, you know, you wonder if this had been a hit or if it had been allowed to, Peter Starr had been allowed to have some success with it, would he have maybe, you know, not gone so heavily into, uh, you know, the power ballads that he would become known for in the eighties. I always kind of had the feeling that he was always definitely headed there. That was like his, his heart's desire to be the singing Hallmark card, but <laughs> the singing Hallmark card. But I mean, I, I'll give him his due. He was a great bass player and he has written a few catchy songs. Not all of which are just drenched in poteen. Protein. And like I said, I, I consider this a one shot because it was as one shot as a solo rock artist. And, uh, you know, like I said, I do remember hearing it back on the radio. So there is a frame of reference for it. And, you know, maybe someday I'll sit down and listen to the entire record just to see if, you know, from what I read in Wikipedia, it he's they said this was definitely a more rock oriented album than his later stuff. It can't get much worse than, you know, Hot Street. So. No, this album would definitely puts Hot Streets to shame. I mean, it's not this song, rather. It's, you know, he's working with some heavyweight people, be, you know, as you know, backing musicians, like I said, members of Toto and some other, you know, other notable musicians of that vintage. And even the cover art looks pretty cool. It's, it's one of these, like, I, I want to say Leroy Neiman, but it's not quite Leroy Neiman, but it's, you know, it's just a picture. It's a sort of painting of kind of an abstract painting of Satara, you know, holding his base. And, uh, you know, you I, you don't really see too much of that afterward. He doesn't even deign to hold a base in any of his videos, like from a certain point. 
but you know it's his choice and it's it's interesting that you brought this up as a one-off because i would never have really pictured it well you know it's one of those things where i just came i was reading i was on a music forum and they were in they're coming out with this peter satira solo box set and it you know prompted a discussion of the different albums and i think oh yeah the solo album from 1981 the first one you know so which you know the general public may probably doesn't know about you know it's not glory of love that's true and plus i just want to i i just want to dwell on that for a second peter satero box set <laughs> solo box set solo box set who do you buy that for somebody you don't like <laughs> <laughs> Someone you're divorced from, from. Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, you probably married with a Peter Cetera song playing at the reception, so it's probably like the ultimate uh, phrase I can't mention here. Yeah, interestingly enough, as a result of reading that, I checked out a song from one of his later 1980 solo albums, 88 or 89. And there's a song where, believe it or not, David Gilmore from Pink Floyd plays on the song, and it's actually not bad. It kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, if I want to fall asleep to David Gilmore, why not add the dulcet tones of Peter Cetera? Hey, come on, let's not trash David Gilmore. David Gilmore is great. He just played on the wrong album. The Endless Cetera. I kind of, I kind of see that. But yeah, it's so it's a solo box set of like I don't know five or six albums that he did from the 1980s and 90s. It's like I can't conceive of buying that myself, but you know somebody somebody will and somebody will probably enjoy it. Uh oh oh what uh, here here we go. I'm I'm looking up the title now. Let's put the X in Salmon X. <laughs> But yeah, but it wouldn't be quite that upbeat. It would be, let's put the X in Summon X. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and you know, I, I know it seems like every time we talk about Peter Cetera, we trash him. And it's, 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 it's because of what he became, not because of what he was. That's, a, that's about as fair a statement as we can make. It's nothing personal, Pete. <laughs> it's strictly musical. It's not business. It's musical. <laughs> yeah. And because he certainly did a lot more business than uh, well, some other people did back in the 80s. Mm. He had long blonde hair at a time when it mattered. Yep. And he had the ballads when a time when the ballads ruled the charts. And with that in mind, I believe we've come to the end of our, our list of one-shot wonders, one-shot deals. X's, Salmon X's, you name them. Yep, and uh, if you're listening, let us know what you think. If you agree, disagree, or maybe even can suggest some stuff that we should have put on here. But I'm I'm glad we I'm kind of glad we did this because I think it's a different episode for us where we're you know we talked about some things and we didn't necessarily know what the other guy was going to say or bring up. Yeah, I mean. I know there's something going on, but I, I just can't guess at what it might be. I feel and like I, there's something in the air tonight, but... And I don't think we were wasting our time either. No. That's all. <laughs> and on that note, we bring another episode of the Double K Super Show to a close. 
our one shot episode. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll do another one. It'll be two shots. But until that time, I'm Chris Karam. I'm Mark Hanzarowski. And we will see you on the next episode of the Double K Super Show, which will not be a one shot. It's no fun being a legal alien. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Double K Super Show. If you like what you heard, please rate a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Podomatic, and share us on social media. Copyright 2021, the Double K Super Show.